Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from The Old Printer and the Modern Press, written by Charles Knight and published in 1854. It looks at the progress of the press and the English language in relation to its day. I'd like to thank you for listening to the podcast, and I hope it helps you fall asleep. My goal is to help people get a good night's rest everywhere, and I hope it helps you. Before you start feeling drowsy, it would be amazing if you were able to leave a comment and rating in your podcast app. It really does help me bring out more episodes to people who need a good night's rest. You can also say hello or support the podcast at boreyoutosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Old Printer, Chapter 1 In the first book printed in the English language, the subject which was the histories of Troy, William Caxton, the translator of the work from the French, in his prologue or preface, says by way of apology for his simpleness and imperfectness in the French and English languages. In France, I was never and was born and learned mine English in Kent, in the weald where I doubt not is spoken as broad and rude English as in any place of England. The weald of Kent is now a fertile district, rich in cornland and pasture, with farmhouses and villages spread over its surface, intersected by good roads, and a railway running through the heart of it, bringing the scattered inhabitants closer and closer to each other. But at the period when William Caxton was born and learnt his English in the Weald, it was a wild district with a scanty population. Its inhabitants had little intercourse with the towns, The affairs of the busy world went on without their knowledge and assistance. They were more separated from the great body of their countrymen than a settler in Canada or Australia is at the present day. It is easy to understand, therefore, why they should have spoken a broad and rude English at the time of Caxton's boyhood during the reign of Henry V, and the beginning of that of Henry VI, William Lambard, who wrote a hundred and fifty years after this period, having published his perambulation of Kent in 1570, mentions as a common opinion touching this weald of Kent, that it was a great while together in manner nothing else but a desert 
and waste wilderness, not planted with towns or peopled with men, as the outsides of the Shire were, but stored and stuffed with herds of deer and droves of hogs only. And he goes on to say that, although the property of the Weald was at the first belonging to the certain known owners, yet it was not then allotted into tenancies. The Weald of Kent came to be taken, he says, even as men were contented to inhabit it, and by the piecemeal to rid it of the wood, and to break it up with the plough. In some lonely farm, then, of this wild district, are we, upon the best of evidence, his own words, to fix the birthplace and the earliest home of the first English printer. The father of William Caxton was in all probability a proprietor of land. At any rate, he desired to bestow upon his son all the advantages of education which that age could furnish. The honest printer, many years after his school days, looks back upon that springtime of his life with feelings that make us honour the simple worth of his character. In his Life of Charles the Great, printed in 1485, he says, I have emprised and concluded in myself to reduce this said book into our English. As all along, and plainly ye may read, hear, and see, in this book here following, beseeching all them that shall find fault in the same to correct and amend it, and also to pardon me of that rude and simple reducing. And though so be there no gay terms, nor subtle, nor eloquence, yet I hope that I shall be understood, and to that intent, I have specially reduced it after the simple cunning that God hath lent to me, whereof I humbly and with all my heart thank him, and also am bounden to pray for my father and mother's souls that in my youth sent me to school, by which the sufferance of God I get my living, I hope truly and that I may do so and continue, I beseech him to grant me of his grace, and so to labour and occupy myself virtuously, that I may come out of debt and deadly sin, that after this life I may come to his bliss in heaven. Caxton seems to have the rare happiness to have had his father about him, to a late period in his life. According to a record in the accounts of the church wardens of the parish of St. Margaret's Westminster, in which parish the first printer carried on his business, it appears that one William Caxton, who is conjectured to have been the father, was buried 
on the 18th of May, 1480. Sometime before the period of Caxton's boyhood, a great change had taken place in the general system of education in England. In the time of Edward III, about half a century before the period of which we speak, the children in the grammar schools were not taught English at all. It was the policy of the first Norman kings, long continued by their successors, to get rid of the old English or Saxon language altogether, and to make the people familiar with the Norman French, the language of the conquerors. The new statutes of the realm were written in French, so were the decisions of the judges, and the commentaries on the laws in general. Ralph Higdon, in a sort of chronicle which Caxton printed, says children in schools against the usage and manner of all other nations be compelled for to leave their own language and for to construe their lessons and their things in French. And so they have since Normans came first into England. Also, gentlemen can be taught for to speak French from time to time and they rocked in their cradle as can speak and play with a child's brooch and unplattish men will liken themselves to gentlemen and delight with great business for to speak French to be told of. John de Trevisa, the translator of Higdon's Polychronican, writing some forty years later, this manner was much used before the great plague and is since some deal changed. For Sir John Cornwell, a master of grammar, changed the teaching in grammar schools and construction in French and other schoolmasters use the same way now. In the year of our Lord, 1385, the ninth year of King Richard II, and leave all French in schools, and use all construction in English. Wherein they have advantage one way, that is, they learn the sooner their grammar, and in another disadvantage, for now they learn no French, which is hurt for them that shall pass the sea. It was this change of system operating upon his early instruction which caused Caxton, as a translator, to be so diffident of his own capacity to render faithfully what was before him out of French into English. Indeed, from his earliest youth to the close of his literary career, the English language was constantly varying through the introduction of new words and phrases and there was a marked distinction between the courtly dialect and that of the commonality. We have seen how he speaks of the broad and rude English of his native world, 
but towards the close of his life, in a book printed by him in 1490, he mentions the difficulty he had in pleasing some gentlemen, which late blamed me, saying that in my translations I had over-curious terms, which could not be understood of common people, and desired me to use old and homely terms in my translations, and fain would I satisfy every man, and so to do, took an old book and read therein, and certainly the English was so rude and broad that I could not well understand it. And also my Lord Abbot of Westminster did show me the late certain evidences written in Old English, for to reduce it into our English now used, and certainly it was written in such wise that it was more like to Dutch than English. I could not reduce nor bring it to be understood. And certainly our language now uses variety far from that which was used and spoken when I was born. For we Englishmen be born under the domination of the moon, which is never steadfast, but ever wavering, waxing one season, and waneth and decreaseth another season. And that common English that is spoken in one shire varieth from another. Insomuch that in my days happened that certain merchants were in a ship in Thames for to have sailed over the sea into Zealand, and for lack of wind they tarried at Foreland, and went to land for to refresh them. And one of them named Sheffeld, a mercer, came into an house and asked for meat, and especially he asked after eggs, and the good wife answered that she could speak no French, and the merchant was angry, for he also could speak no French, but would have had eggs, and she understood him not. And then at last another said that he would have iron, then the good wife said that she understood him well. Lo, what should a man in these days now write, eggs or iron? Certainly it is hard to please every man, by cause of diversity and change of language. For in these days, every man that is in any reputation in his country will utter his communication and manners in such manners and terms that few men shall understand them. And some honest and good clerks have been with me and desired me to write the most curious terms that I could find. And thus between plain, rude and curious, I stand abashed. But in my judgment, the common terms that can be daily used be lighter, easier, to be understood than the old and ancient English. In these days, when the same language with very slight variations is spoken from one end of the land to the other, 
it is difficult to imagine a state of things, such as Caxton describes, in which the common English, which is spoken in one shire, varieth from another, and there was a marked distinction between plain terms and curious terms. Easy and rapid communication, and above all the circulation of books, newspapers, and other periodical works, all free from provincial expressions, have made the over-curious terms, which could not be understood of common people, more familiar to them than the old and homely terms, which their forefathers used in their several countries, according to the restricted meanings which they retained in their local use. When there were no books amongst the community in general, there could be no universality of language. Of this want of books, we may properly exhibit some details, chiefly to show one of the most remarkable differences which the lapse of four centuries has produced in our country. We shall find it, we think, a more agreeable as well as more instructive course to look at the general subject of the supply of books in connection with the orders of people who were to use them, rather than presenting a number of scattered facts to exhibit the relative prices and scarcity of books in what was called the Middle Ages. We will first take the clergy the scholars of those days. The mode in which books were multiplied by transcribers in the monasteries is clearly described by Richard de Bury, Bishop of Durham, in his Philobiblion, a treatise on the love of books, written by him in Latin in 1344. As it is necessary for a state to provide military arms and prepare plentiful stories of provisions for soldiers who are about to fight, so it is evidently worth the labour of the church militant to fortify itself against the attacks of pagans and heretics with a multitude of sound books but because everything that is serviceable to mortals suffers the waste of mortality through the lapse of time. It is necessary for volumes corroded by age to restored by renovated successes, that perpetuity, repugnant to the nature of the individual, may be conceded to the species. Hence, it is the Ecclesiastes significantly says in the twelfth chapter, there is no end of making many books. For as the bodies of books suffer continual detriment from a combined mixture of contraries in their composition, so a remedy is found out by the prudence of clerks, by which a holy book paying the debt of nature may obtain a hereditary substitute, and a seed may be raised up like the most holy deceased, 
and that saying of Ecclesiastes chapter 30 be verified. The father is dead, and as it were not dead, for he hath left behind him a son like unto himself. The invention of paper, about a century and a half before Richard de Bury wrote, and its general employment instead of vellum for manuscripts in ordinary use, was a great step towards the multiplication of books. Transcribers necessarily became more numerous, but for a long period they were wholly and wholly belonged to the monastic orders, and the books were essentially for the use of the clergy. Richard de Bury says, with the most supreme contempt for all others, whatever be their rank, laymen, to whom it matters not whether they look at a book turned wrong side upwards or spread before them in its natural order, are altogether unworthy of any communion with books. But even to the privileged classes, he is not sparing of his reproach as to the misuse of books. He reprobates the unwashed hands and the dirty nails, the greasy elbows leaning upon the volume, the munching of fruit and cheese over the open leaves, which were the marks of careless and idle readers. With a solemn reverence for a book at which we may smile, but with a smile of respect, he says, Let there be a mature decorum in opening and closing of volumes, that they may neither be unclapsed with precipitous haste, nor thrown aside after inspection without being duly closed. The good bishop bestowed certain portions of his valuable library upon a company of scholars residing in a hall at Oxford, and one of his chapters is entitled A Provident Arrangement by which books may be lent to strangers, meaning by strangers, students of Oxford, not belonging to that hall. One of these arrangements is as follows. Five of the scholars dwelling in the aforesaid hall are to be appointed by the master of the same hall, to whom the custody of the books is to be deputed, of which five, three, and in no case fewer, shall be competent to lend any books for inspection and use only, but for copywriting and transcribing, they will not allow any book to pass without the walls of this house. Therefore, when any scholar, whether secular or religious, whom we have deemed qualified for the present favour, shall demand the loan of a book, the keepers must carefully consider whether they have a duplicate of that book, and if so, they may lend it to him, taking a security which in their opinion shall exceed the value of the book delivered. Anthony Wood, who in the 17th century wrote the lives of eminent Oxford men 
spakes of this library, which was given to Durham College, now Trinity College, as containing more books than all the bishops of England had in their custody. He adds, after they had been received, they were for many years kept in chests, under the custody of several scholars deputed for that purpose. In the time of Henry VI, a library was built in that college, and then, says Wood, the said books were put into pews or studies and chained to them. The statutes of St. Mary's College, Oxford, in the reign of Henry VI, are quoted by Wharton in his History of English Poetry as furnishing a remarkable instance of the inconveniences and impediments to study which must have been produced by a scarcity of books. Let no scholar occupy a book in the library above one hour or two hours at most, so that others shall be hindered from the use of the same. This certainly shows the scarcity of books, but not such a scarcity as at an early period of the church, when one book was given out by the librarian to each of a religious fraternity at the beginning of Lent, to be read diligently during the year, and to be returned by the following Lent. The original practice of keeping the books in chess would seem to indicate that they could not be very frequently changed by the readers, and the subsequent plan of chaining them to the desks gives the notion that, like many other things tempting by their rarity, they could not be safely trusted in the hands of those who might rather covet the possession than the use. It was a very common thing to write in the first leaf of a book, cursed by he who shall steal or tear out the sleeves, or in any way injure this book. We have abundant evidence, whatever be the scarcity of books, as compared with the growth of scholarship, that the ecclesiastics laboured most diligently to multiply books for their own establishments. In every great abbey there was a room called the scriptorium, where boys and novices were constantly employed in multiplying the service books of the choir, and the less valuable books for the library whilst the monks themselves laboured in their cells upon Bibles and missals. Equal pains were taken in providing books for those who received a liberal education in collegiate establishments. Wharton says, at the foundation of Winchester College, one or more transcribers were hired and employed by the founder to make books for the library. They transcribed and took their commons within the college, as appears by computations of expenses on their account now remaining. But there are several indications that even kings and nobles had not the advantages of scholars by profession, and possessing few books of their own, had sometimes to borrow 
of their more favoured subjects. We find it recorded that the prior of Christ Church, Canterbury, had lent to King Henry V the works of St. Gregory, and he complains that after the king's death, the book had been detained by the prior of Sheen. The same king had borrowed from the Lady Westmoreland two books that had not been returned, and a petition is still extant in which she begs his successors in authority to let her have them back again. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you're feeling drowsy, and if you're not, please feel free to listen to another episode. I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon, and in the meantime, good night.